The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. I love stories. I suspect that that love began in childhood. Um, some months ago, I think my mother was probably cleaning out somewhere and found a book of stories I was given at the age of 10 as a prize from uh, prep school prize giving. It was a book of science fiction short stories. And, you know, I, I, I thumbed through it. Of course, the, the pages are now getting discolored. Um, but I thumbed through it and I could remember just some of the storylines and some of the characters. And I remember at, at, at 10, 11, some of those stories were pretty grotesque. It was just kind of like, yeah. So there were ones I just didn't want to read and others I really enjoyed reading. But, you know, I was thinking about it. Even with those short stories, if you skipped the first few paragraphs and read the rest, you'd be lacking some important details for understanding and appreciating the story. Any author would tell you that the introduction is a really important part of the story. Today, as you heard, we're going to begin our long journey through the book of Acts. Acts has 28 chapters. Our pace, working our way through it, is going to vary based on the section. Sometimes we're going to do entire chapters and maybe a little bit more in, in one sermon. But today we're beginning with just 11 verses. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. These verses are going to set the stage for everything that follows in this magnificent story. So, let's pay close attention, asking God to help us to hear and to understand His Word. We've called this series Witness for a number of reasons. One is that we are being called to witness these events. So, we want to do that beginning here in Acts 1, verses 1 through to 11. This is God's holy Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There are a few books that we have preached through here at GFC that aren't that popular, neither for reading nor preaching. 
Lamentations and Ecclesiastes aren't on many people's favorites list. But Acts would be. A few weeks ago, I was chatting with someone who had recently become fascinated by this book of Acts. I mean, it's a fantastic story, even with the long speeches. And their healings and jailbreaks and magicians and demon-possessed fortune tellers, riots and shipwrecks. It's action-packed and fast-paced and as, as it tells of the first three decades of the early church. There's much to love and there's much to argue over. This book has been chopped up and turned into fuel for some of the most incendiary debates and passion, p- passionately defined differences in Christian beliefs and practices. The scholar Alan Thompson captures the contemporary scene well. What major themes, issues, or debates come to mind when someone mentions the book of Acts to you? The answer to this question inevitably includes a cluster of issues related to anything from the charismatic movement, speaking in tongues as a sign of receiving the Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing, church government and practices, congregational versus Presbyterian church government, the responsibilities of deacons, infant slash household baptism versus baptism of believers, baptism as a condition of salvation, to missionary methods, whether or not we should follow the same strategies. It seems that, at the popular level at least, Acts is still used more for answers to debates that were not necessarily prominent in Luke's aims than listened to for Luke's own emphases. I mean, that list is a lot to debate, isn't it? Now, we're going to have to tackle some of those hard questions when they arise in the text. And we will have to deal with some thorny questions about what Acts describes versus what Acts prescribes. But we want to start as we mean to go on in this book by focusing our attention on Luke's emphases. We want to keep the big picture in view so that we don't misunderstand the details. And the best place to start grabbing a hold of that big picture is right here in the introduction. Luke will tell us what this book is really about. Now, it's tempting to quickly read and move beyond parts of Luke's intro, especially because it involves substantial recap. Luke starts where the Gospels end, even his own Gospel. But everything he says here is deliberate and important if we're going to understand Acts. We're going to examine this introduction in three parts. We'll look at Luke's recap in verses 1 to 3. Then we'll look at uh, the Father's promise in verses 4 to 8. Finally, we'll look at Jesus' departure in verses 9 to 11. As we approach the end of that examination, I'll shape our findings into one big idea that will help us to summarize Luke's intro and give us a handle on the book as a whole. So let's begin then by examining Luke's recap. So look in your text at verse 1. When you look at that verse, what's immediately obvious to you? This is not the first book. Our author is writing again as he addresses some editorial comments to Theophilus. Now in my intro, I've identified the author of the book of Acts as Luke an early disciple who accompanied uh, the Apostle Paul during some of the journeys that are described in this book and who was mentioned in some of Paul's letters. But strictly speaking, Acts is anonymous. But since the early days of the church, this book and that, that first book have been attributed to Luke for lots of good reasons. Firstly, both are addressed to Theophilus. 
he was likely a wealthy Christian who was supporting Luke financially as he researched and wrote. The author wasn't just a researcher, though. He participated in the events reported in Acts. Towards the latter part of the book, a careful reader will notice that he starts to say, we went here, or we did this. Based on the lists of those who helped Paul in his ministry found in the New Testament letters and the education level of this author, his Greek was very good and Luke was well-educated. Luke is clearly the most likely author. Now, there's a substantial payoff in connecting Luke's two books. We can recognize that this second book would naturally share the same features of the first. As fantastic as these events are, they are history, not fantasy. Luke does not mean to regale us with a spectacular story for our entertainment. He's aiming to strengthen our faith in a real person, in Jesus. Here, just like in the Gospel of Luke, he has compiled an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony and careful research. Also, he tells us here that in Acts, he tells us here in Acts 1:1 that in the first book he wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. That precise phrase helps us to recognize that Luke does not think that Jesus is done yet. What Jesus began in the gospel, he continues here in Acts. If we're going to read and preach Acts the way Luke intended, it's pivotal that we set out aiming to see Jesus at work. Acts doesn't merely tell us exciting and inspiring stories about church history. The apostles, as we'll soon consider, are important actors in this story. But they are supporting actors. Even when Peter seems to be center stage, even when Paul seems to take the limelight from him, they are only supporting actors. What they say when they speak is going to demonstrate this. Acts tells the story of how Jesus worked and how he works to extend his kingdom. Now, I know that many of you are struggling to get to know Jesus, to feel like you truly know him, you wonder whether he can truly be trusted. You can meet Jesus and continue to get to know him here in Acts. Here you will see his heart towards us more clearly than you can by trying to interpret the circumstances of your own life. Jesus is on glorious display in this book. The renowned preacher and theologian John Stott puts it this way. Jesus' ministry on earth, exercised personally and publicly, was followed by his ministry from heaven, exercised through his Holy Spirit by his apostles. Those apostles feature heavily in Luke's intro. That word only occurs once, but lots of pronouns in this text. They, them, you, keep those apostles in focus. It's significant that Luke does not refer to them merely as disciples, but apostles. That term, as many of you would be aware, means commissioned, sent agent. It can refer to a messenger or a delegate. Observe verses 2 and 3 in your text. Look at those verses carefully. What do we learn about the apostles here? Firstly, Jesus chose them. They didn't apply for a position in his organization. They were handpicked. So they are, therefore, an expression and an extension of his rule. Also, Jesus presented himself to them after his suffering. It's interesting that Luke would highlight Jesus' suffering instead of saying, after he died and rose from the dead. Spoiler alert. It's a hint that suffering 
is going to be an important theme in this book. But back to the point. Jesus took pains to prove to the apostles that he was alive, that he was flesh and blood, back from the dead, but much improved. They needed to know that he was not a ghost because at times they were like, no, no, he's a ghost. You know? It can't be Jesus. We know he died. And they needed to be sure that he didn't merely live within their hearts, you know? For his purposes, these men needed to be convinced that he was alive. So, over a 40-day period, he appeared to them on multiple occasions. Now, think about it. If Jesus wanted to prove to the world that he was alive, why didn't he make an appearance at the temple at the hour of prayer when everybody would have been there? You know what I mean? Just show up and be like, I'm back! You know? Why didn't he appear in the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish leaders who put him to death? Why didn't he do a comeback tour in Galilee? You know, working his way back through all the towns where he did ministries like guys, to the adulation of the crowds. I mean, he had 40 days, and it's pretty clear from reading the Gospels that he could travel and get places pretty quickly. So, I mean, he could have organized a tour and got ar- gotten around. We know from the rest of the New Testament that he appeared to other disciples and not just the, the, the apostles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about an, a, a time when he appeared to, uh, to up to 500 of his followers on, on, on that one occasion. But why did he only appear to his disciples? And why is Luke focusing on his appearances specifically to the apostles? As we'll come to see, he chose them not only to be his closest friends, but to play a particular role as witnesses. It serves us to recognize how important the apostles are in Jesus' plans. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of his people. He holds everything together. But by his choice, the apostles are a part of that foundation. In Acts 2, we'll see how the early converts to Christianity dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. They weren't merely the first leaders of the church. They played a different role from those who came after them. That should shape how we receive their teaching in Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. They were Jesus' authorized representatives who taught with the authority that he delegated to them. Now, I've noticed a trend, not, not among us, but as I've interacted with other believers. There's this way people try and think that they're going to hold to Jesus' teachings given in the gospel, and they hold them in higher regard than the rest of the New Testament. But to do that is to disregard the structure that Jesus himself built. It was never his plan to establish the kingdom all by himself, or on his own words only. He always meant to do, do so through the agency of the apostles that he chose. As misguided as these guys are at points in the gospel, those of you who are here for the gospel of Mark know that they were spectacularly misguided at points. Their moment comes in Acts. So for the journey we're undertaking, we must listen to them just as we listen to him. And we're going to hear much from them. Luke tells us here in Acts 1-3 that during these 40 days, Jesus was focused on teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God. That's an important phrase here. Here's what's interesting, though. References to the kingdom of God don't occur often in Acts. 
There's arguably another one in verse 6 of this chapter. It is, however, a major theme in the Gospel of Luke, with that phrase occurring more than 30 times. And remember, Luke wants us, the readers, to maintain a link between the Gospel he wrote and the second book of Acts. Here in Acts, he speaks of the kingdom at some key points, including here at the beginning and at the end of the book. So jump over to Acts 28. There's a reference to the kingdom of God in verse 23, but I want to focus on verses 30 to 31. Those are the last two verses of the book. He, speaking of Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts begins and ends with teaching about the kingdom of God. And a handful of other references to the kingdom of God show that wherever they went, that's what the apostles and disciples were preaching about. Now, we know that Acts is a sequel, but what sort of sequel is it? The Gospel of Luke is, mostly, is, is most definitely about the kingdom of God. So is Acts also about the kingdom of God? Alan Thompson suggests this. The book of Acts is not just a sequel to the gospel of Luke in the sense that it describes the spread of the gospel or in the sense that it describes the growth of the church. The book of Acts is a sequel to the gospel of Luke in the sense that these elements are placed within the framework of Luke's explanation of what the kingdom of God looks like now that Jesus has come, announced the arrival of the kingdom, died, risen, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. I mean, think about this. This is a pressing concern. He came announcing the kingdom and inaugurating the kingdom, and then he's gone. So what's going to happen to the kingdom? Who's in charge? How do people enter the kingdom? There are all of these questions that arise because of Jesus' ascension. And Luke wants us to see a frame here. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. Then all of these things are going to happen. Then Paul is preaching about the kingdom of God. And so he wants us to read everything within the frame of understanding the nature of the kingdom of God while the king does not seem to be around because he's not visible. So as we make our way through Acts then, we're reading the story of how Jesus continues to bring the kingdom through the apostles he chose. Luke moves from his brief recap to give us some important details about Jesus' conversations with the apostles before he ascended into heaven. Now again, think about this. You know, a, a, a part of, if you, I want you to understand how this works. So if you're going to write a book in ancient days, you're writing on a scroll. A scroll has a particular length. So you're going to make some serious editorial choices, you know, to make sure that your book is going to fit on this scroll. So here Luke is at the beginning making some choices to zoom in, in verses 4 to 8, on a particular interaction that Jesus and the apostles have before he ascends. So this is important. So, in these verses 4 to 8, he's going to give them a very specific instruction. They're going to respond with a question about the kingdom. And then Jesus' answer is going to help us to understand the entire book of Acts and to see how it's connected to the Father's promise. So, this is our second heading, the Father's promise, verses 4 to 8. I've learned as a father to be noncommittal. My children will often ask me for things, you know, can you drop me to such and such a place? Can we play a board game later? Can you buy me such and such a thing? And even when I'm willing, I tend to be slow to say yes to almost any request. 
Part of that is I remember well when they were young and I would say yes to things and realize pretty quickly that they remember what I say. And when I was unable to come through, like there's a car accident or something like that, that I'm saying, come on, anybody in the world except a child would understand that I could not have done that. They'd say to me, but you promised. And it would break my heart. And I'd just be like, I don't want to do that. So I may have gone to an extreme, admittedly. But the truth is, I, I, I want to be a man of my word. And I recognize that I'm supposed to be a reflection of their Heavenly Father. So the adjustment I've made in light of my limitations, which causes them an entirely different type of frustration, is that my reply to almost any request is, we'll see, or I'll think about that, or I can't promise, but I'll try. Thankfully, our Heavenly Father is not like that. It's impossible for Him to make a promise that He cannot keep because there's no limitation to His power. He's never blindsided by unexpected events. He never gets new information or changes His mind. The Father always keeps His promises. And His reliability is tremendously important to the events described in Acts. Everything that happened in this book hinged on the Father's promises. Any way you look at it, the spread of Christianity described in Acts is remarkable. Thousands upon thousands of people responded to the message about Jesus and were added to the church. As early as Acts 5.28, the angry Jewish leaders say to the apostles, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And this remarkable response wasn't only among Jews. Later in the book, angry opponents in Thessalonica, a Gentile city, say of Paul and his ministry partners, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What the book of Acts describes is nothing less than a revolution. But to truly appreciate what we'll see, we need to understand it, not so much as a new, unprecedented initiative, but the coming to pass of very specific promises of old. We need to see the way Acts tells of the fulfillment of God's promises given hundreds of years before the fact. We need to see it as a part of his plan to restore his people Israel and bless the nations of the world. That's what we're going to see in these verses. Now, notice that in verses 4 and 5, Luke has given us a general intro in 1 to 3. This is what was happening during these 40 days. But now he zooms in to a specific instruction that Jesus gave the apostles while he taught them about the kingdom of God. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the Father's promise. And Jesus makes it clear exactly what they were to wait for. They were to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the day when that would happen wouldn't be far away. What did Jesus mean by being baptized with or in the Holy Spirit? I mean, that could get controversial, couldn't it? But thankfully, the book of Acts will answer that question as it tells its story. We'll get to that not too many days from now. Jesus speaks again in verse 8. Luke, of course, is being selective, as, as as I mentioned in this introduction. So it stands to reason that he's using Jesus' direct speech to highlight things of importance to this book. Both times Jesus speaks, he talks about the Spirit. The second time he says a lot more. Look at verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is a well-known verse in the book of Acts. It's widely understood to introduce the program for the book of Acts. 
This is the commission Jesus is giving to the apostles. This is what we're going to see play out in the text. We're going to watch the Spirit-empowered apostles witness about the resurrected Lord. And their message will spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. But what's often missed is the connection between the commission and the Father's promise. The key to seeing the connection between the commission, the Father's promise, and the kingdom is found in the much maligned question the apostles ask in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, here's how I've read this text for most of my life. And it's the same way a lot of people read it, including, in fact, a lot of commentators that I have deep respect for. Jesus tells the disciples to wait for the giving of the Spirit. But they still have this idea that Jesus' mission is to free the nation of Israel from Roman rule and to restore them to, to their place of prominence among the nations. So they're basically asking, okay, Jesus, now that you died and came back from the dead, is it time yet? Is it time to do that? Based on that reading, Jesus' reply to them is a rebuke to their misguided priorities. As Thompson explains, either he talks of the church age while implicitly postponing a restoration of Israel to the future, or he talks of a universal mission empowered by the Holy Spirit in contrast to the disciples' focus on purely national and political concerns for ethnic Israel. So one way or another, it's either gentle, no, 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 guys, it's not time for that, or come on, guys, you're still on that? That's not the program here. But this text gives us a significant reason to think differently about the apostles' question. What had been the focus of Jesus' teaching that they were absorbing for 40 days? The kingdom of God. In the last chapter of Luke, which overlaps with this intro to Acts, uh, we're going to get greater clarity on how Jesus taught them. So this is Luke 24, 45 to 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus was teaching the apostles about the kingdom of God and the Father's promise from the Old Testament. Again, Alan Thompson is very helpful. Old Testament hopes for the blessing and transformation of God's people are reflected in Jesus' words, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses and to the ends of the earth. The language of Jesus in these three phrases reflects the wording of phrases in Isaiah that look forward to a coming salvation brought about by God and his suffering servant. I'll pause there for a second. So essentially, the picture we're reconstructing is Jesus is taking them into the scriptures, quite likely Isaiah, and showing them places where, all right, first of all, let me show you what happened, because you guys didn't get this. You didn't understand why I needed to suffer and die. But Isaiah speaks of a suffering servant. That's what I was doing. Isaiah 53, he's going into there. And he's going into places in Isaiah 35 and in, in Isaiah 49. And he's saying, hey, this is the plan. This is the program. So let me continue. In his reply to the disciples, Jesus does not reject their inquiry into God's promises of restoration. Whether in redirecting this hope to a distant future or in rebuking a nationalistic focus. He is rather affirming and clarifying their role in this restoration. 
As God has promised, this restoration will involve the enabling of God's Holy Spirit, the transformation of God's people who bear witness to the Savior, and the inclusion of the nations. So what Jesus is saying in answer to their question is, yes, we are on the cusp of the fulfillment of God's promises of of restoration. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but the timing of these things should not be your focus. I want you to be aware of the role I'm calling you to play in the fulfillment of God's promises and your need for the Holy Spirit. Remember, He chose them. So now He's saying to them, this is the role you are playing. You are part of all of these prophecies that are coming to pass. And what the prophecies say is that the Spirit is going to play a big role in all of this. Even with what Jesus taught them during those 40 days. I mean, imagine that. Imagine sitting with Jesus and him explaining the scriptures to you day after day for 40 days. Just unpacking the scriptures. But even with all of that, they were not ready to represent him. They were lacking something. Really, they were lacking someone. What this means is that the Holy Spirit was pivotal to Jesus' continued activity, the Father's promises coming to pass, and the advance of the kingdom. He would empower the apostles for the mission Jesus had given them. That's the emphasis here in this text on the role of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see a lot more about the Spirit as we go. This book is going to teach us a lot more about Him. And that's something that we can look forward to. The Father always keeps His promises. It's so important for us as believers to be convinced of this. We cannot live as faithful followers of Jesus if we are not looking to the promises of our Heavenly Father that are still to come. You know, sometimes people relate to Christianity as if it's just a good set of morals that hold up to scrutiny no matter what, you know? It's good to live this way. And then you start living this way and you start going through some experiences and you're like, it's not worth it. This is just not worth it. Look at the people out there who are disregarding God and having a wonderful life. We cannot live as faithful followers of Jesus if we are not looking to the promises of our Heavenly Father that are still to come. If we don't trust Him to come back for us, to vindicate us, to reward us, to comfort us, it is impossible to live to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. A worthwhile prayer to pray for your own hearts as we walk through this series. Particularly if you struggle with trusting God. And which of us doesn't? Is that God would continue to convince you that He keeps His promises. One of the things that the book of Acts will show us is that He's able to keep His promises despite the shortcomings of His people and the opposition of His enemies. The places that Jesus mentions in the mission... Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, are not merely representative of the geographical spread of the gospel, with Jerusalem being the point of origin. These places represent particular peoples that God promised He would save and restore in the Old Testament. The Father always keeps His promises. In this account here in Luke 1, Jesus' teaching comes to a sudden end. He ascends right before the apostles' very eyes. But this is not merely a dramatic exit. Jesus isn't leaving the scene as much as he's taking up a new position. Once again, the way Luke speaks of his ascension emphasizes its importance. 
Let's examine Jesus' departure in verses 9 to 11. So here's one of, the, one of the things we pick up based on understanding how manuscript and writing in manuscripts work. You don't repeat things that you don't need to repeat. First of all, you're writing all of this by hand. Somebody's going to be copying this out by hand. Uh, and you have limited space. And Acts is a long and magnificent story. There's a lot to tell. Imagine all of the things Luke did not talk about. So when you read these verses, notice how much repetition there is in these verses. When I was growing up, the song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, became popular here in Jamaica. This was before the days of internet and streaming music, so Christians couldn't just curate their favorite playlist of worship artists, and we learned a lot of songs from each other. That song includes a theme that I think is rare in our worship songs. It says, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. It seems to miss a step, you know, the resurrection, but... It gets at the ascension, at least. For whatever reason, at least in my estimation, we don't often sing of Jesus' ascension. His life and miracles, yes. His death and resurrection, yes. His reign and return, yes. But his ascension? I really can't think of many songs or verses that refer to that. But Jesus' ascension is critical to this book of Acts. And the fact that it was witnessed by the apostles is critical for their witness about him. We're going to see that in the coming chapters, particularly in chapter, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. But for now, Luke wants to underline the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven. Look at verses 9 to 11. You can underline those details too if you like. In verse 9 it says he was lifted up. In verse 11 it says he was taken up. And between verses 10 and 11, four times Luke, Luke indicates where Jesus went. He was taken into heaven. We as modern readers of this account understand more about the nature of the created world than the apostles did. We know that the earth is, is a sphere and that it has an atmosphere. And that beyond that is the immeasurable vastness of space. So even if somebody flies off into the sky, which is by no means normal, we have no idea where they have gone by simply seeing that. But here's where God was way ahead of all of us. The apostles had no idea where he went either. What they saw was that he was taken up and a cloud hid him from their sight. But they and we benefit from a supernatural explanation. And it's hilarious when you think about it. Two men in white, uh, if you've read much of the Bible, you'd recognize this as a description of angels, that's, that is heavenly messengers, suddenly are beside the apostles as they're gazing into heaven. And they ask the most ridiculous question. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now, if they had paused for dramatic effect, I think the apostles should have replied, what do you mean, guys in white, who weren't here a moment ago? The guy just went off into the sky through the, crowd, through the clouds. Of course we're staring into the sky. But the point of the question was to say this, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is the question. Where's Jesus? Where is he right now? We know where he is because the angels told the apostles something that they couldn't otherwise have been sure of. Jesus is in heaven. The, the tremendously significant implications of that 
will be seen more clearly as we get into the next few passages. I won't spoil it now. I'll only say this. Without the ascension, the rest of Acts does not happen. Without the ascension, the Holy Spirit would not have been given. Without it, the church would not have been born. Where is Jesus? In heaven. The Old Testament makes it clear that heaven rules over earth. So Jesus' departure doesn't imply that his activity has ended. He certainly changed positions. But Acts will show that he continued and continues to act, to act, to do and to teach through the apostles who received the Holy Spirit. He promised that he would be with his people even to the end of the age. And he kept that promise through the Spirit he gave. These few verses are tremendously important for us because while many of the events detailed in the book of Acts are historical, this truth is contemporary. In this, we are exactly in the same position as the apostles. This Jesus who was taken up from them into heaven will come in the same way as they saw him go into heaven. Just like them, we live between Jesus' ascension and his return, between the inauguration of his kingdom and his consummation. We live in between. The kingdom has already come, but it has not yet come in fullness. Acts will show us what it looks like to live in between. I want to say that again. One of the massive payoffs from Acts is that it's going to show us what it looks like to live in between. Here in between, God's people suffer like their Savior did. Here the church appears to be weak, susceptible to political powers. God's servants are arrested and killed sometimes. The word of God appears to be nonsense and is mocked and rejected by many. Yet it is unstoppable and all those who are appointed for eternal life believe. And that word strengthens the church and keeps her from discouragement and from deserting the one who bought her with his own blood. So we can expect that this book of Acts will shape our expectations and hopes. It will strengthen us to live as faithful disciples in between Jesus' ascension and return. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that the fact that this same Jesus who was taken up into heaven that day will come again one day has massive implications for you. According to the promises of the Father, when He comes, He comes to gather His people and to judge His enemies. He ensured that the apostles would witness about Him so that anyone who believes the good news that He suffered to deliver them from the wrath to come would be included among those people. By faith in Him, today you can turn from your rebellion and embrace Him as your Lord. You can do that through the power of His Spirit without any help from any of us. But His plan is that those who come to Him continue to learn about His kingdom through the apostles' teaching. Our role, therefore, as a local church is to continue to teach what the apostles taught. So we'd be glad to help you to follow Jesus as a part of this community. So please don't hesitate to talk to me or to Sheldon or to Sean after the service. Luke, in introducing this, his second book, wants to make sure that we, his readers, understand that Jesus' story is not over. What Jesus began continues. This is not a sequel where the main character from the first story has left the scene and the plucky supporting actors, who we came to love, come to the fore and have their own adventures. The apostles are tremendously important in this story, but we are not reading the acts of the apostles. 
The Holy Spirit is, dispens- is indispensable. But nonetheless, I contend that this book would not be best titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. This book is best recognized, as Alan Thompson insightfully observes, as the Acts of the Risen Lord. Here in the first few verses of Acts, Jesus sets the trajectory and heads the place from which he will direct all the action. So what we see here at the beginning of Acts is what we must take with us into the rest of the text. In the book of Acts, the Lord Jesus extended his kingdom through the witness of his spirit-empowered apostles in fulfillment of the Father's promises. That's our one big idea that serves as a summary of Luke's intro and gives us a handle on the book as a whole. You can keep it up there, Daniel. Oh, you forgot to put that there. Well, okay, you could, you could put it there now. Or I could read it slowly. <laughs> but this is the big idea. The Lord Jesus extended his kingdom through the witness of his spirit-empowered apostles in fulfillment of the Father's promises. All of those elements are important. It's Jesus who's doing the work. This work is about the kingdom that he inaugurated. The witness that drives the story of the book of Acts forward comes through the power of the Spirit and comes through the apostles whom Jesus chose. And all of this is happening in fulfillment of the Father's promises. What Jesus began in the Gospel of Luke continues in the book of Acts. We need eyes to witness in these pages the continuing work of the risen Lord. That's what's going to help us to understand who we are as his people to trust in God's promises, and to live faithfully in between the times when he was taken up and when he'll come again. What Jesus began continues. It did not stop with the last chapter of Acts. It has never stopped. This week, around us and around the world, the Lord Jesus is extending his kingdom as people witness to the gospel through the power of his spirit in fulfillment of the Father's promises given in the Old Testament. As we work our way through Acts, we'll better understand how we are called to participate in that great work. But even before we figured all of that out, we can walk in this confidence. Jesus is at work, and God will always keep his promises. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your ascension did not represent your leaving the scene to kick back in the holiday atmosphere of heaven having done your work and left us alone to struggle and try to find our way. We thank you, Jesus, that you are still integrally involved in everything that's happening with your church. You feel the pains we feel. Uh, Your spirit empowers us and is your life within us. You are directing everything that's happening. You promised that you'd build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And we know that that building is hands-on because of this book of Acts. So, Lord, we pray, first of all, for us as a local church. We're grateful for what you've been doing among us, and we desire to see more, Jesus. We desire to see you build us more into your word, into the apostles' teaching, into one another, into the fellowship, the prayers, and the breaking of bread. Lord, strengthen our relationships and strengthen our knowledge of you. Lord, cause that we would become a church that doesn't only sit and witness you in this book of Acts, but becomes active in witnessing to the risen Lord. We desire that just like the people in Acts, we would become those who who everywhere we go, we talk about the risen Lord Jesus who has transformed our lives. Lord, we pray for the work of your gospel 
here in Jamaica. Lord, it, it seems so often, you know, when we look around that people are aware of the name Jesus, but don't understand who he is at all. They've heard things, but don't even recognize their need to come to faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we as the church would live in the ways you've called us to live so that we would be a compelling witness to the transforming power of the gospel and that we would speak that gospel to those we meet. That we would learn to uh, just be flexible in how we interact with people. That we'd recognize the leading of your spirit as you interrupt our lives and bring people into our spaces. Lord, we pray for the work of the gospel globally. Uh, your promise was that the witnesses would take the, the message to the ends of the earth. Lord, there's still so many people in so many places who have never heard of you. And we desire that they would hear of our glorious Savior. So Lord, would you please continue to advance the work of the gospel around the world? Would you please help us even as a small local church to understand our role in that? We thank you for our partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches and how we're able to be hands-on in participating in work going on in many countries around the world. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are serving. We pray for the pastors who are leading churches and seeking to strengthen them in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you'd cause your word to thrive and to go forward uh, and you draw many people and add them to the Lord. And we pray that those people would be added to local churches where they can be taught and cared for and learn to love one another and become a part of the mission. Jesus, we thank you that we cry out to one who is directing everything for the sake of your glory. And we long for the day when you'll return. We pray in your name. Amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.